0: Welcome to episode three eighty seven of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not uh, reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, and I, just so you know, this is the last podcast episode for two thousand twenty one. And boy, uh, we can't see the back of two thousand twenty one soon enough. Um, so we're g- glad to say we're going off to uh, to see if um, uh, a high hamstring injury will s- allow me to go cross-country skiing. Uh, so that's the plan. Uh, and we'll be back here in early January. It's a Big bunch of stuff, all the things that people should have done um, Thanksgiving week, they did last week. And uh, so we've got a lot to cover and we've got a great panel. Dave Itell is here, information security specialist and founder of the Itel Foundation. Hi, Dave. Okay. And Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and a hundred other things. Uh, Jamil, great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me, Stuart.
0: And Maury Shank, London based lawyer, technologist, and the Person I've known the longest on this uh, podcast. Uh, Maury, great to have you.
2: Glad to be here and taking no responsibility for the recent behavior of Boris Johnson.
0: (laughs) You know, we don't even pay attention to that. I'll make no uh, comparisons to our leadership. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS, today's provocateur and host. So the story we cannot ignore uh, is Log4Shell, which I think might be the first uh, attack or vulnerability to get a 10 out of 10 on the CVE scale. Uh, Dave, did it really get 10 out of 10? And just how bad is it?
3: You know, it's funny that you call it log for shell because, to be honest, it should have a Chinese name. The name should not be log for shell My Chinese is pretty weak, so I'm not going to offer an alternative. But as far as we know, just to back us up a little bit, Sometime in November, the Alibaba security team announced to the Log4j team that they would found a serious vulnerability. Around December 2nd is the earliest exploitation of that vulnerability in the wild that anyone has uh, sort of uh, said they've seen. And three days ago, we, we got ourselves a, a patch that now everyone is rushing around on the internet trying to install. But the vulnerability, it is a 10 out of 10 in the sense that... It's as bad as it get can possibly get. It is a complete remote code execution from anonymous users on the internet. Anyone who can get you to put their data into a logging statement. It affects version two only of log four j, which might save some people who are still on the much older version one. Uh, so you know, <laughs> and since an app-
0: it's open source, they 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 really could be, couldn't they?
3: Well, some of the big big, big projects still are on the old version. Uh, okay. Like, this is a bug that would have owned me, uh, because it owned Minecraft, <laughs> and I I bet 99% of the viewership that has children has Minecraft on their personal computer, no matter how sensitive that personal computer is, because you yeah. have been in a position where you need Minecraft. So, you don't Minecraft via chat message, which is, I think, one <sighs> of the just, like, just that's how bad this vulnerability is, is it is just everywhere. You know, I think it, there's so much to talk about from a policy perspective with regards to this vulnerability. One, people are pointing out, you know, how under-resourced our underlying open source community is. And that's just not a problem that's going away anytime soon. We saw the same thing with Heartbleed, we saw the same thing with Shellshock. and all of these things, you know, are really complex questions. How do you resource them? How do you handle, you know, emergency needs when you've built all your stuff on top of them? And of course, the other issues are, you know, not every Chinese person is a black hat, much as you would like to sometimes, you know, like, yeah. the attitude in the United States policy community is, you know, China equal bad. And that's not always true. The Ali Bobby team has consistently been able to produce good security results and share them with the world. Yeah. And of course, that brings you to the question of why did the Chinese government, the MSS, let this one out? I don't think it was anything too complex. Like, I think we can overcomplicate some of these issues and be like, well, they must have their own vulnerability equities process, et cetera, et cetera. You know, sometimes these things just happen because people are trying to do the right thing. And that's just yeah. the way it is.
0: Sometimes the vulnerability is just too good, don't you think? You can't let this, you can't hide this and exploit it for very long for fear it'll end up biting you.
3: Maybe, maybe not. I mean, that's the argument that the vulnerability equities process would have. And I would say that, you know, there's certainly an aspect of the vulnerability equities process that's, you know, indicted by these sorts of things happening. If the Chinese are, in fact, finding better vulnerabilities than we are on a regular basis, what is the point of us having a vulnerability equities process? Right. So there's a thousand policy like we're going to see, you know, we really got denial of service by the like policy things that are about to happen around (laughs) this vulnerability that's it's just every angle is going to have a storm let's put it that way
0: all right so we're going to be hearing about this for weeks luckily i will be cross-country skiing but uh, when i come back it'll still be reverberating
3: it will guaranteed and and in ways we hopefully um have no control over to give us some fun
0: Okay, Uh, so we have so many lawsuits over cybersecurity that I don't know where to start. But actually, I do know where to start. Uh, I'm going to start with Jamil. And I want to talk about Google's lawsuit over uh, the two Russians working for organized crime. And Google's lawsuit against them, I have to say, you know, I, I like the guys who wrote the Apple complaint against NSO. But this just puts that Apple lawsuit in the shade. They have been much more creative and much more aggressive in looking for a legal basis for suing people who are engaged in cybercrime.
1: No, that's exactly right, Stuart. I think what's really interesting about this lawsuit, we have seen a series of lawsuits, and we'll talk about one, I think, probably a little bit later on, that Microsoft has brought to bear as they've tried to seek to take over domain names. But Google here is going after them, not going after these two defendants um, and this larger botnet, not just under CFAA, or but they're going after them under RICO. And that, I think, is what's really interesting, right? This isn't. This is a claim against a criminal enterprise that involves a series of activities, including cryptojacking and the like. You know, proxies, disruptive ads, credit cards. I mean, the series of schemes taken together that create this larger criminal enterprise. And so, putting this sixty-some odd page complaint together, I think we have a very interesting roadmap for organizations that want to go after uh, criminal operations. We've talked for you know, months and years now about about ransomware and the scourge of ransomware. I think that, you know, I think that this is an interesting way for at least some companies that can afford, you know, lawyers of the caliber that Google can bring to bear to bring claims against uh, against bad actors.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's very impressive. Identity fraud claims and access device fraud claims and the usual Microsoft-style trademark claim that we'll cover in a second, all as predicate offenses into RICO, which probably makes it less necessary for them to show individual CFAA damage, which was one of the right. problems that the NSO lawsuit that Apple brought had. So, Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, uh, These guys deserve it because they, too, were pretty creative. I thought that building your infrastructure so that you can resuscitate your uh, C2 infrastructure just by going to the blockchain, which people can't really undo once the messages are installed in it, it's there forever, was pretty clever, maybe not Necessary. It may have been just kind of doing it to show off, but it, it uh, I, I nonetheless am impressed that these guys did that and we'll see more of that too. Sure. Okay. So, what about the Microsoft lawsuit? They also announced that they had brought a lawsuit and they used this, the, what is now it ought to be a trademark Microsoft uh, uh, brief uh, in which they claim, "Hey, you used our name in order to fool people, and that's a violation of our trademark, and therefore we're going to seize any piece of your infrastructure that has anything that sounds like a Microsoft name in it." And they did. I don't know. You know, at this point, you hate to say it's boring, but it is. It didn't break any new ground, and probably didn't even break the infrastructure of the attack network, right?
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting here is uh, you know here they're going after a Chinese cyber espionage group, Nickel, right? APT fifteen, also known as Mirage, Vixen, Panda, you know, you name it. But what I think is interesting about this suit is the fact that they, like you say, uh, they've now sort of they've now sort of come up with a way of going after these that they've been successful at seizing these domains and sinkhole these domains. but this is the fifth time now. It's almost it's the twenty third, twenty fourth time that Microsoft's gone after uh, a cyber crime, cyber espionage group. The, but the fifth time they've gone after a nation state attacker. They previously went after Solar Winds, you know, COVID nineteen folks, uh, Iranian hackers, and the like. And so, but I do think this is an interesting one because of their efforts to go after state sponsored espionage groups. And again, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Microsoft and the role they've been playing in the large ecosystem is not only are they creating these. You know, these legal theories about how to go after criminals and nation states, they're playing an increasing role in international conversations about what the standards ought to be and the like. You know, private sector actors have often played that role. Microsoft He's institutionalized. You know, under, under Brad's That's right, that's right, exactly. And under Brad Smith's uh, leadership has really sort of started to play in these spaces in a way that nation states historically played. Now we could debate whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. The fact of the matter is that they are playing that role. Very few other companies, you know, Google may bring these losses, like, but very few companies has has sort of. Uh, Arrogated themselves might be the wrong word, but it certainly feels like that at times. Arrogated themselves, uh, the responsibility of acting the way a nation state would in the cyber domain. Microsoft has certainly taken that perspective and, you know, to to some very notable successes against these groups.
0: Yeah, and plus, they they wrote their own international multilateral treaty in the Paris Call, which was basically a Microsoft document, as far as I can tell, which now, uh, since it has Paris in it, the French have been pushing all around the world, and it's got a bunch of stuff in there that was really just about Microsoft's uh, business interest, uh, and then a lot of good government stuff for the world. And so, yes, they hired a bunch of Obama administration international people. And I I don't want to say you can get folks like that cheap, but you can certainly get them cheaper than you can get engineers. And so they've come up with an entire strategy here. We'll see if it plays in the long run. They seem to have been able to get away with getting in... China's way a lot uh, and Iran's way without suffering a lot of consequences. So maybe this is a model we'll see from other companies. Uh, certainly, Google probably would be better off if they were following this strategy. Apple's view is they they could be a nation state, but that would be
1: a step down. That is, <laughs> I think that may very well be their view.
0: All right. So speaking of Apple, I, <laughs> Maury, 275 billion dollars to china and we didn't find out about that deal until it was five years old uh, uh, it had been going for five years and was over
2: well we know now but so yeah this came out in a well-researched story in the information by wayne ma who the information prides itself on detailed tech stories i haven't i have to admit i haven't paid the 400 dollars to read the whole story. But based on the reporting of it, it appears that in 2016, Tim Cook went to China because there had been a lot of Chinese regulatory actions, and he did a deal which is being valued at over five years, $275 billion. Um, And it was basically to provide a lot of support for Chinese manufacturers with advanced technology and training in exchange for laying off Apple. And it's paid off. I mean, Apple is now the number one smartphone brand in, in China, been helped by the U.S. government undermining Huawei. But, you know, Apple is being treated okay. And it's interesting, look, you know, Apple soft, Apple and Microsoft have played well in China. They're still there. Google and Facebook are out. Amazon's mostly out. I think Microsoft uh, and- is getting
0: out too. And they don't make a lot of money off of software sales and their and their, their LinkedIn operation has really been skinnied down.
2: Yeah. Well... Uh, that may be right. but And for Apple, it's been a good deal. The, the report is that they signed a 1250 word non-binding MOU. And I think non-binding is smart because China is going to get you even if you have a binding deal, they'll find some way to change the deal. So for Apple to give itself flexibility and just keep playing the game in a way that gets itself ahead was, I think, a smart thing to do. How long that will last, we don't know, but it's worked for the moment.
3: Well, some of the deals, like, were really weird to me, like where it was like you have to invest a billion dollars in Didi, which is the competitor to Uber in China, and like some some of the like sort of the mushiness of of establishing connections between Apple and other companies were very interesting and sort of hyper smart in my opinion.
0: Yeah, so of course that was when the. PRC was in love with DD. now they're they're, they're not sure they should be uh, getting as much money as they're getting. but I agree in 2016 DD was struggling still with with Uber if I remember right So this was industrial policy on the uh, PRC's point of the part. Some of the stuff is is weird. they it, they insisted that some of the little islands uh, that are part of I think of the uh, uh, nine dash line be made bigger. So that they'd always show up when you looked at a map of the South China Sea, and sure enough, that's still the case. So I do think there really is a question here, though, whether a company like Apple, which has such enormous influence on governments around the world, but which is basically a U.S. company – Should do a $275 billion deal with a foreign government and not tell anybody? It seems to me that we have an interest in that. uh, That is, you know, if there isn't a regulatory requirement that they tell the U.S. government about it, we ought to find a way to to create one.
2: That may be why they did it as a non binding deal. And We say that these requirements are, this is the way the Chinese do business. I mean, I think that goes to your point, Stuart, is should Apple be going in and playing by Chinese rules? But they have a very explicit stated policy in China of fostering now. They've reined back Alibaba and the like, and they said that the state-owned enterprises need to play ball with the private enterprises. They foster those connections and that interconnectivity to maintain control. And I, I think that goes to your point, but I don't think it's weird from a Chinese perspective. This deal,
0: yeah, that, that quite quite right. I, but it, it's weird that we just let it happen, and Tim didn't even occur to Tim Cook that he ought to tell somebody. I, I, I and and they can say it's non-binding, but I bet you that they lived up to it uh, every single comma and sub. Subordinate clause in that agreement, Apple has lived up to because they have to. All right, more law. Sorry if you're not a lawyer. I Jamil, the Tenth Circuit had in front of it. It's not a, a a first impression question anymore, but it's a question that has been much debated and only occasionally litigated. Which is, is it is Section 702 of FISA legal? I and and Section 702 is the provision that most of our counterintelligence uh, information came from. It's basically saying the fact that you have a infrastructure in the United States does not mean that we need to get an individualized warrant. As long as we are targeting foreigners, we can go to people like Google or Verizon and say, look for this foreigner's communications to and from the United States, across the United States, however it happens. And we're just going to give you a list made up by a bunch of people in the intelligence community of who they want to see. And we don't need no stinking warrant. And that's what the law says. And that's pretty much what this 10th Circuit
1: said. Well, I have to admit to having a little bit of a personal stake in this in this fight because uh, I was involved in the creation of the seven oh two legislation when I was at the Justice Department and defending it before the FISA Court of Review, well before the FISA court and the FISA Court of Review when it was up and its predecessor statute actually, actually, the Protect America Act, when it was up. And so the Tenth Circuit relies in significant part on the FISA Court of Review's opinions that come in the aftermath of its original opinion in redirected. So so in this case, you know, the question the 10th Circuit is looking at is look, we have a defendant against whom information Incidentally acquired about him as being brought to bear in in a criminal proceeding. There's classified information involved. There's a question of speedy trial rights, but the core question at stake, there's a big debate between the majority, the two judges that held that, that that the defendant here should be convicted and that his conviction should be upheld, and the dissent from Judge Lucero, who argues that his speedy trial right was denied. But more importantly, for our purposes, that while the collection may have been reasonable in the Fourth Amendment, the findings by the court that relate to whether there were queries done ahead of time or not were not permissible for the court appeals to engage in. And then a further debate about whether the FISA court review in reviewing collections ahead of time under the 702 statute. Uh, so what they do is they review the procedures under which the government conducts the statute, whether it's rendering an impermissible advisory opinion under Article Three. And so some of these things, as you say, Stuart, we're getting get into the real legal weeds here. But what's really interesting about this case is that it's a 220-page opinion uh, and dissent taken all together. So a lot to review, and there are a lot to debate, uh, I think, for legal scholars for for time to come. And because of Judge Lucera's dissent, uh, a significant possibility that this will be, that on bonk review will be sought in the 10th Circuit, and then potentially up to the Supreme Court, where uh, my former boss and a former 10th Circuit judge sits on the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, who hasn't necessarily been the most favorable to, to government requests for surveillance and the like, or at least some might say, given his history on the 10th Circuit and where he came out in some of these opinions, although he may, with the, with the government in a couple of cases, his reasoning seems to suggest that he may not be there all the time. And we know Justice Sotomayor and the like have had raised concerns about surveillance in the United States. And so we'll see what happens if this way makes it to the Tenth Circuit on banc and then potentially the Supreme Court.
0: So uh, a couple of things, uh, because you you, you unpacked this very nicely. The basic holding, I think even Judge Lucero doesn't really fight about it, is you don't need a warrant to go after foreigners, even if you're using infrastructure in the United States. So they don't have Fourth Amendment rights. I and then... Uh, the question of whether you can do a search of the data oh, oh, and your incidental collection is also legal even if you're collecting on Americans, right? Because of all those foreigners that we're targeting, many of them are talking to uh, American citizens, we're collecting all of their communications, and you know you could say, "Well, you got to have a warrant for that." But the answer is no. Once you've got a good target, it's lawful. If that target happens to talk to an American, bad luck for the American. That does not seem to have been a problem. But the the last question that was raised here was, "Hey, all that stuff, all those American communications that you collected, that you just have sitting in a big data lake." If the FBI later says, hey, I wonder if this guy ever talked to some foreign terrorists and runs a search on them, is that a search that ought to get Mm. a warrant? And there the question turned out to be a factual fight, if I understand it, about whether the government actually had done that and whether that brought this defendant to their attention. And that's a very factual dispute, and so we're not going to get an answer on that. I thought the other interesting issue was this question. I probably have a different view than you do on this. I think there's a real problem with having the FISA court abstractly review stuff and abstractly tell us that it's okay or not okay, because I think that does put the judges in a situation where they're not really deciding cases or controversy. They're overseeing the operations of the National Security Division in a very managerial way. And frankly, if you look at the decisions that they have written and the approaches they've taken – they are looking more and more like managers, and managers who are taking some political heat when they review this stuff. Uh, I don't think you can really say that they're applying the Fourth Amendment. They're applying some generalized politicized standard about uh, what they think the privacy um, traffic will bear.
1: Well, so I'm not sure that I'm not sure that, that latter point is right. We can fight about that one. On the former point, I think you're exactly right that they're you know look other than in some of the. You know, fever swamps. There's no real debate about whether the U.S. government can surveil foreigners overseas without regard to, without the need for a warrant, even if that 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 uh, collection is conducted in the United States. This is an issue that's been litigated over and over and over again, and with rare exception, and even then, only very narrow circumstances have defendants even raised an arguably valid claim. Now, all that being said, I do think that there is an ongoing political and policy debate about searches of government databases and whether you can use American identifiers to search those databases. We saw some of that play out in the USA Freedom Act and those debates, an ongoing conversation. But let's just remember what happened pre-9-11 and what everyone said right after 9-11 in the aftermath, which was, boy, it's crazy that the government isn't drawing connections between stuff in its databases. It's not looking at its databases. It's not connecting the dots. And now here we are, 20 years later, having had the benefit of 20 years of connecting the dots and no major terrorist attack on U.S. soil. And now we're saying, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't connect the dots. You should have data. Maybe it's okay to have information in your database. Don't go look at it. This one drawer should be off limits for the FBI to look at because, God forbid, they look in that drawer and find terrorism, you know, and we should keep that off limits. Again, it sort of cuts against the whole theory of information sharing and all the things that, all the learnings we had after 9 11. So we'll certainly debate that. And then this last point, Stuart, about the FISA court. Look, there's a lot that can be said about whether they're being managers and overseeing theoretical government collections, right, and whether there's a real, you know, debate here. Well, one, I would say there isn't now a somewhat adversarial process because the Congress has required them to appoint counsel to fight the other side. So it's not like there's not a, a, you know, or at least argue for privacy and civil liberties. And so we have at least an adversarial process at some level. I do agree with you that the FISA court monitoring the government's collections and sort of saying yes or no to government procedures does you know, raise an interesting question. Is there a case or controversy in the Article Three sense? But it raises a larger question of whether, in this capacity, the FISA, the FISA court and the FISC are, are Article Three courts. You know, for a long time, they sat in the Justice Department. This has been a hotly debated question, also. And so, you know, more to come on this. I will just say this Congress created a statute that requires the FISA court to do this. So if you think they're doing the wrong thing, or it's not an Article Three decision or not a case or controversy, Okay, but Congress asked them to do this yeah. in the statute they wrote. Both the Protect America Act and then in more detail in the FISA Amendments Act.
0: I actually question whether I it that issue had any consequence. Suppose you said, oh, "Okay, the FISC shouldn't have reviewed these these principles and and procedures." Right. You say, "Okay." So I'll give you an advisory opinion not to do that again. It's it's not at all clear to me that uh, I would have gotten this guy off. It was just – they were just using that as an excuse to to brief an issue that the law professors are in love with.
1: Well, well, I wonder about that. I mean if you struck down – if you struck down the review – Right, the FISA courts review as part of the statute. Does the rest of the statute survive? And I think the answer is probably yes. Right, but is it segregable? Right, is it separatable? And if, if the answer is yes, then then so be it.
0: And who has standing to make that argument? Because it's not clear that this guy would have been better off without the review. So I, yeah, it's a it, it's it's a it's a surprisingly messy issue, uh, which seems to have been skipped over by the uh, you know I guess they didn't have room in 220 pages to cover that. Okay, I. Uh, so more good news from Dave. Actually um, maybe this is good news. It turns out that at least 10% of the entire Tor network has been compromised by what is almost certainly a uh, a nation state because they keep coming back creating fake Tor relays so that they can try to connect up the incoming and the outgoing identities uh, of people who are using Tor. Is it is that a possibility if you only have 10% of the the Tor relays
3: it's it's sort of it, unfortunately the statistics are a, a little bit more annoyingly complex i mean in theory what you would want to do in the most naive attack is control both the first entry point and enough of the middle that you can sort of watch some of the traffic go through via traffic analysis and then the exit point to see where it was really going in the end the wait. so for people who are not aware, Tor is a anonymity initially funded, I believe. It, it, it,
0: they may have shifted it. But yeah, it, it's one of the dumbest things the US government spends money on.
3: Or smartest. Hard to say. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Honestly, I don't know how to put it. I was just going to say. I mean, hey, you know.
0: Uh, yes, I'm <laughs> sure there are uses that they're getting from it, but at a cost in child porn distribution that uh, is not really sustainable.
3: I, I find our equity decisions in all areas of government very exciting. So the, the, the summary here is that, you know, if you look at whether or not, you know, it's hard to say what percentage of the tour traffic this particular actor called Cax17, very cool name, is able to de-anonymize. But it's a it's, an, a, it's a real significant number of, uh, you know, percentage of traffic. I would say, you know, based on purely on the exit nodes, which is what I would look at, they have 5% of the traffic. Because they've thrown, like, they have a 150, you know, gigabyte pipeline coming out. They're hosting on places like Microsoft Cloud and other places where, you know, these are not cheap cloud providers. So someone is funding this. And previously, you've seen groups fund these kinds of efforts to do things like replace crypto coin, you know, wallet addresses in in the last hop, right? So you've seen attacks before. Uh, but this one apparently looks more professional. And the funniest part of it is they've been talking on the Tor Relays mailing list. You know, every time someone suggests that they implement a new change that would make, you know, the, the de-anonymization job harder, you know, they pipe up and they're like, no, we don't like that idea. <laughs> that's, the, that's the best part. Right? Like, they're like this is terrible. What a bad hey, hey, idea.
0: We're, we're, we're a big infrastructure <laughs> provider and we don't like this idea.
3: <laughs> exactly. So I think that's really the funnest part of it like when you look at how open source projects are run the social engine around them is the most interesting part in some sense like this is true for linux for the django for every big piece of the infrastructure it's not just the technology it's also this huge social community floating around it uh, like an ectoplasm it's so that's part of the fun with this particular one
0: and, and, you know, if this is the U.S. government, don't you think there's an, a, a parallel interagency discussion that says, uh, What the hell are you doing? We're already spending all this money funding you and funding our, our, our network of, uh, uh, of fake relays. Uh, and you want us to spend more?
3: <laughs> well, I just think that's the galaxy brain solution, right? Like, like this is how you get work done. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. So assuming that, assuming that it is, you know, us on both sides, but it could easily not be. And that, that's a bigger worry, I think. I
0: always thought the French were likely to be doing this, but maybe not at scale. Uh, they don't have as much money as they used to.
3: I don't think it's as much money. I mean, for a nation state, like, you know, I like to put these things in like, is this a new nuclear submarine money? Is this like a, a Sidewinder missile money? And it's definitely closer to Sidewinder missile, right? So yeah. these things are just not that expensive.
0: All right. I, well, I, uh, we eventually we will find out because eventually it will be necessary for them to – well, actually, maybe not. They can say, oh, yeah, we got lucky on this one tour uh, uh, relay and uh, uh, pretend for years that it uh, wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
3: World's a complex place. Future's unknown.
0: All right. One more. Let's do one more lawsuit because, again, a creative use of the law, Apple's uh, NSO lawsuit, in this sense, it is a lawsuit against the guys and the company that became known as Dark Matter, right? And that's the company in the UAE that was using American technicians to Hack uh, a lot of phones, including a lot of iPhones, uh, for the UAE government, uh, and the U.S. government said those guys, that the Americans ultimately went too far and uh, made them all take um, what amounted to uh, criminal penalties, and they admitted to a lot of what they had done. Now we've got a Saudi woman who lived in the UAE who is bringing a computer fraud and abuse Act case against Dark Matter and. Those poor three guys who were going to be spending another 10 years litigating over what they did in UAE. And I thought, Jamil, it raised some really interesting questions about how far the CFAA goes in terms of asserting jurisdiction over what Americans do outside the U.S. when they're affecting U.S. technology.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think that's exactly what's going to be litigated here. I mean, this is a woman who, you know, was a Saudi uh, women's rights activist. She had, she was sort of famous for driving violation of the Saudi female driving ban, which was lifted a few years back. She, this lawsuit brought on be on her behalf by the EFF, alleges that the involvement of these folks in hacking her phone, allegedly. Remember, she was arrested in the UAE and then and then handed over to the Saudis, where she ended up serving three years in Saudi jails, and now can't leave Saudi Arabia. So the question becomes how does the what is the tie between the, the alleged unlawful hacking uh, that, that these folks have pled to in US charges and US government charges brought against them and can you bring CFA claims in US courts for something that happened outside the United States and happened to somebody else who's now detained outside the United States? So it's an interesting use of the of the statutes. We'll see how it plays out, but uh, but obviously again, you know, I guess this goes to say you know, if you're a U.S. citizen, probably not the best idea to be hacky on behalf of a foreign government where uh, potential civil liberties are are in play, and particularly one that's you know that uh, you know that may be more on the edge than your typical ally. UAE obviously an ally in the sense that we have we have uh, an air operations center, and we have we have operations centers. We have the fifth fleet, I believe, uh, stationed in Bahrain, but has operations out of out of the Emirates and the like, and so uh, we have acti- military activities in that relationship there. But look, you know we've had cha- we've seen the obvious challenges the Saudis have when it comes to uh, their human rights practices. The Emiratis also have raised similar issues, and so this is one example of where these things might come to bear for folks who used to be in the U.S. government and in the and in, and the intelligence community in particular.
0: These defendants have a better shot at winning the argument that NSO lost when it said, "Hey, we have a sovereign immunity defense because we were working for." governments. In this case, Dark Matter was clearly working for the UAE, and so was everybody else. And they were doing what the UAE asked it to do inside the UAE, at least as to this woman. And sure, they did Reach out to the U.S. and you can say, "Well, that gives the U.S. jurisdiction," but it doesn't um, undo the fact that there was a sovereign interest here, and this is a lawsuit over whether the UAE should have been able to wiretap somebody who was in the UAE at the time. And so, I I think that they may uh, end up unable to get past the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, but we'll see. It's the Ninth Circuit, so Interesting. anything could happen.
1: Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point, one that I hadn't really had thought through, and I think it's a really a really interesting argument that will likely be litigated. Yep. Great point.
0: Okay. Italy, one point one billion, one two hundred and seventy-fifth of what China got from Apple, but it's still a billion dollars. Italy has fined Amazon for abusing its market dominance. Basically, if you wanted to be designated as Part of the prime market, say you had to use Amazon's logistics or approved logistics suppliers. And uh, Italy said, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. And frankly, I've got a little sympathy here, Maury, for Amazon. If you want to be designated as prime, which means you're going to have one-day delivery, Amazon's got a right to say, we we want to make sure that it's somebody who actually can do one-day delivery.
2: Yeah, I Totally sympathize. I mean, I think it's not just being designated as Prime. Prime is an Amazon service that Amazon runs. So they were saying to be part of Prime, you have to join Fulfillment by Amazon. And I I just think you're not inside the Prime system if you're not inside the Prime system. So I do have some sympathy. But it wasn't just that. I mean, they were saying that it's Prime, it's visibility as well, that they were promoting people. And they're starting to treat Amazon, at least in Italy, as kind of a public utility that if you're a seller, you should have rights to you know equal prominence with third parties and in addition to the the fine they've got some behavioral requirements of fair and non-discriminatory standards for third party sellers i think that's the biggest the bigger deal for amazon as well as the fact that this kind of fine can start to chip away like you say 1.13 billion maybe not so much for amazon in the grand scheme but if it's one of many antitrust settlements That's a big deal. And the EU is investigating the same stuff and carved out the Italy case. But if this is EU-wide, it's going to be a much bigger settlement. The Amazon stock price didn't do too well after that. This is starting to get big enough to, to count to be real money for amazon
0: yeah i you know it occurs to me that this is a little like the all cops are bastards and defund the police stuff which had a moment and and a, and a very severe correction which we're still going through it spread so fast that people started to say wow that's not working out so well i think we could start to see that with this hipster antitrust attack on uh, Everything that Google and Amazon and uh, Microsoft uh, uh, and Apple do, because you can't you can't extract billion dollar fines from every single market and still have a, the the advantage of the technology that those companies are providing. So maybe maybe sooner than we think, this notion that there's a counter revolution in antitrust is going to reach its limits.
2: Maybe, but you know, look at history. IBM was really slowed down by antitrust for a long time. They basically ceded the PC software market to Microsoft because they were scared of antitrust repercussions. Microsoft then grew. And was hamstrung by antitrust for a decade or so. And, you know, until... And,
0: and gave up um,
2: Netscape, uh, gave up the, the browser market uh,
0: for fear of antitrust consequences. And, and probably also some networking uh, software as well.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, Steve Ballmer scored some own goals. And Microsoft has come back for other reasons. And because it's gotten a lot more competitive in their markets... But I'm not so – sure. it will reach a peak somewhere. I mean, everything's got a peak. But I think we've got a ways to run on this one.
0: Okay. I Dave, I, I want to ask you this question because it, it popped up in a Bloomberg story. Who is Ilya Sachkov and have you actually had a beer with him?
3: I have not. That's sort of like a who is John Galt style question here. <laughs> um, you know, he, he's – what, one thing that I love about the information security world is that it is filled with crazy mutants with wacky powers. And so we're talking here about a Russian person who, while they were in school at the Bauman Moscow State Technical University, started at age seventeen, group IB.
0: And Which is what probably know, the second most famous Russian cybersecurity company.
3: Yeah, although There's a pretty significant gap between Kaspersky and Group IB, but (laughs) the the reality is that that Group IB has tried to go its own way. It went a slightly different path from Kaspersky in the sense that it became much more international uh, according to their own claims. Mm -hmm. Their revenue from Russia is only 40% of their revenue. You know, they've really tried to branch out. They're, They're very tight with Interpol. And then even recently, you know, on a panel, you know, Sachkov was sort of, critiquing the the ransomware fomenting that the russian government has done right so so he's gone his own way that's not a totally wise choice necessarily in russia you know like i mean he started the company saying that he wanted to build a global business while remaining on the good side of the russian government and it does not look like uh he was successful at that since he's now in an fsb jail for treason to talk to his family for treason and of course you know his second in command has taken over the company and says you know we think he's innocent they're doing their best you know his his trial's not for another year uh yeah. going to be in this i the, guess the, the interesting thing is go ahead sorry the, the
0: the the treason seems to have been alleged to have occurred in 2016 and might have had something to do with the the hack of the dnc is that the the rumor
3: that, that's the rumor is that he outed fancy bear or some portion of the fancy bear operation Uh, it may not even be that he had classified knowledge of it from the you know from the russian perspective it may be that his security team was able to sever things and you know put that into the system the way uh you know any international antivirus essentially will be thought to do and he may have okayed that decision instead of not okaying that decision is certainly a possibility. So, it's a ton of t- possibilities. I don't want to like prejudge his legal, you know, stance as much as like that actually matters. In when you're in the FSB jail, you know, he's released statements to the to Putin saying, "Hey, I'm just a Russian engineer. I'm not a spy." And he's, you know, he's been in contact with Putin in the past as well, right? So he's been close to the team in the past. You can see that in his history. Help States. you with
0: Putin. If, if if you're not on the team now, having been on the team before, probably makes it worse.
3: Yeah. uh, You know, I, you can't help but feel bad for where he is right now. Yeah. Um, Of course, you know, realistically, the United States did have massive amounts of intelligence, you know, probably both including signals and human intelligence on the fancy bear operation. I think that was one thing that, you know, these things, when we release, people think that when we are making a statement that's backed up by intelligence that we need to show our work, and they forget that a lot of times, showing your work has bad repercussions in the, pa- in the in the future, and and we're going into decades of the future, and, I, and that's sort of always been one of the balances that we've been trying to strike with how do we defend ourselves in cyberspace, where everything is coming out of intelligence. That's really have- interesting.
0: Yeah. So, so the desire on the part of the Obama administration to make it clear that the Russians had done that that hack could possibly have disclosed a little bit of information that was traced back to
3: uh, Group IB. And people always say, you know, we're protecting sources and methods by not revealing certain, you know, very key things. But that's not how intelligence works. It's not just about, like, we didn't release this guy's name, right? right? Like, you have to, there's like a, you have to have, you know, a bodyguard of lies. It's a significant space, you know, and that's sort of, not to quote Churchill too much, but that's sort of, I think, one of the things that this sort of feeds into, like, you know, I don't know that he was, in fact, at all a member of our intelligence on Fancy Bear. But but now it looks like he was, who knows, to the FSB, and they're coming after him hard.
0: Here's a guy who basically had lived his entire life in a post-Soviet Russia and probably had some naivete about exactly who was running the government uh, and what he could get away with. That's my guess, is that he was – too socialized into the international forensics culture and didn't reckon with the politics, even if he had spent time with Putin.
3: Which is a culture. You're, you're, completely, you're completely right about that. There's sort of a we're helping the world feeling, you know, we are the cavalry, right? And and yep. sometimes, you know, it's, it doesn't work like that.
0: All right, let's do some quick hits. Samori, the U.S. has Blacklisted SenseTime, which is an AI company, a lot of face recognition, if I remember, over Xinjiang. And I think SenseTime has now put its IPO on hold. They were going to go to IPO in Hong Kong, and now it's not clear they're going to.
2: Yeah, the Biden administration put them on the Chinese military industrial complex companies list, which is. Biden's June 2021 extension of Trump's blacklisting of some Chinese companies. And that list basically says you can't invest in these companies and you got 12 months to divest. So, as a U.S. investor. So, uh, this happened the day before pricing day for the IPO. And they decided, well, without U.S. investors, we better at least put it on pause and, and think again. Presumably, they were already book building and That presumably put a big wrench in the spokes of their book. The timing was almost certainly deliberate because guaranteed
0: that there would be a stick in the spokes. Uh, Even if they can replace the US investors, they can't do it in 24 hours.
2: Yeah, I I think they'll be back with an IPO. I mean, I think we're seeing decoupling of uh, US and and Chinese capital markets. And since time, is not going to abandon public markets because of this, but we'll see.
0: So it, there's a, a distinct possibility that Julian Assange will be decoupling from the United Kingdom and heading off to the United States. He, his extradition was approved by the appeals court. He's still got some appeals, but they don't
2: sound very promising, are they? Well, he would just be asking the UK Supreme Court to review the same issues that that the high court reviewed. It's, you know, facially, one would think the basic grounds for extradition are are present here. It was accused of disclosing diplomatic cables, and that would be a crime here in the UK as well. But the, the argument against it seems to be you know, that he wouldn't be safe, wouldn't receive a fair trial in the US. I think the Supreme Court is likely to come out the same way, but we'll see. Do it they have take to take it or do they the... have a discretionary uh, docket? I believe this one they have to take, but I should know better. I'm not 100% sure. Okay. I think they will take it in any event, even with a discretionary docket. This is such an important case. Because
0: Julian Assange is determined to inflict on himself a sentence probably longer than he would get in the United States if he just come here and pleaded guilty. It's astonishing. He's locked up and he keeps thinking of ways to to continue his his imprisonment and then he's going to be locked up while he's awaiting trial and then maybe it sounds like uh, the US has said we that, that it might be willing to send him to Australia to serve his.
2: Yeah, I mean he, he did WikiLeaks did disclose thousands of cables, so I don't know, you know, in US judges have a lot of discretion on sentencing so i think it's not certain that he would that he wouldn't get a very long he sentence could. here he, but absolutely there. he
0: could and you know people there there are there's reason to believe that people were killed because uh, he was so irresponsible about uh, not taking names out and what he released, so he could end up with a long sentence. But then the Aussies are going to have to say, "Well, we've got this American style sentence. Are we really going to continue it?" On the other hand, he's not—he's apparently not doing that well mentally or physically. So he—he he may have caused more pain and uh, uh, difficulty for himself with his strategy than than the government of the United States could have. Uh, And that's kind of consistent with his whole approach to life. So I guess I'm not weeping for him. Jamil, uh, everybody seems to be weeping for cyber incident reporting legislation, which did not make it into the National Defense Authorization Act, largely because of some Republican opposition at the last minute saying it was too regulatory. And, you know, there's a lot of brave talk about how it'll pass uh, as a freestanding bill, really, in in what will be an election year next year. I'm guessing you could make a lot of money betting it won't.
1: No, I think that's exactly right, Stuart. I mean, look, it is true that a 93% of the cyber experts uh, surveyed by the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago said that cyber reporting legislation was, was important or critical. I happen to be in the 7% that disagreed, in part because, you know, my view is, look, you know, the second you mandate something by law, the likely thing to happen is as soon as the company has to report, they're going to call their lawyers. And the lawyers, you know, like you and, and the team are going to say, report as little as possible, as late as possible. Now, again, I'm not saying that's bad motives, that's simply smart, cautious lawyering, right? But that is exactly the opposite of what the government wants, which is they want a lot of reporting as early as possible. And the way to do that is not regulations and not laws that force you to do it, but incentives. Get the companies to roll in the same direction as you, right? Give them a quid pro quo, give them tax incentives, give them anonymity, give them liability protection, the problem is Congress, in all its wisdom, right, says, "Well, you know, here's solar winds, right? Here's a bad hack of the government, and that, or the hack of a provider that led to a hack of the government, and, and some parts of industry. Let's have industry tell us about things after they happen. God forbid we get ahead of the problem and solve these problems ahead of time and incentivize good behavior. No, no, let's make sure we get the information about it after the fact, and then we can do something about it. You know, it doesn't strike me as the right approach. But you're right; everyone's wringing their hands and they think it's going to pass, uh, you know, on its own. I mean." Maybe so, but as you point out, it's an election year. There's a lot of other priorities. You know, we saw how long it took to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill done. There's now President Biden's Build Back Better plan, which is going to take up a lot of time and energy. There's a lot of judges, the Biden administration and nominees, the Biden administration wants to get done. Cyber incident reporting uh, passing in that context in the Senate, I wouldn't be holding my breath, Stewart.
0: People are going to get just—they're going to get mad at each other, and and then they're just going to say, "Well, he wants it, so I guess I don't," and that'll be the end of it. I that look—it would be nice. I would like to see it pass, mostly because I, I like the idea of sitting in the boardroom saying, uh, "Well, it requires a determination, and I'm not ready to make a determination." So let's take another twenty-four hours, and everybody pl- applauds. So I, uh, uh, but. I, I do think that it it would be a good thing if people felt more pressure to tell the government about these incidents.
1: Sure. More billable hours for lawyers. There you go. Not?
0: What's not to like? <laughs> All right. I, I, I thought this was going to be an interesting story, and then I tried to actually read the materials, and they, they haven't even sent them to me. This is a group of big companies that said, we need to do something about AI bias and hiring. Which I, I frankly think is a largely bogus issue. I'm happy to debate that sometime, but it is nonetheless a perception issue for sure. And these are companies that are, that, that didn't want to be sued over perceptions. So they are looking for a way to use AI in their hiring without being accused of bias. And they've come up with a whole bunch of recommendations for how to evaluate bias. And when you go to their website, they'll tell you all about it. And then when you say, so what are those recommendations? Leave your name, we'll send you email. And that's kind of where I was left. So I don't know what to, to say about this, except I'm pretty skeptical about the whole enterprise because, of course, they just want a deal that allows them to use AI. And as long as they can introduce socially and politically approved bias, they're happy to do that as long as they don't get sued.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the issue is a bit overhyped, but I don't think it's bogus. I mean, your workers switching from dealing with humans for hiring to machines in important stages of the process is, is pretty significant. It's going to stay around. I think they have a good reason. And, you know, this is a big list of companies. that includes Meta and GM and Walmart and people like that, MasterCard. First of all, I mean, if they're evaluating software that's evaluating AI bias, if they release their list of questions broadly, then people will design the software to get around their questions. So I'm not sure that they want, I think they have a good reason to keep this quiet. We we may see, I, I suspect we'll find more data over about that over time. Uh, I think they have um, a,
0: a reason to keep it quiet too. And the, the reason is they want to introduce a bias that will prevent them from being sued. But we'll see. I have put my name on the list and we'll see if they mail it to me. I was struck by the fact that this is a policy document and the very first page is a page full of legal uh, mumbo-jumbo about how they're not responsible for anything you do with this, and it's not advice, and it's not to be used to make decisions. It was a very lawyer-dominated process, and that means they probably are in the business of trying to minimize big company liability, and that probably means uh, we'll be glad to give you quotas as long as you don't sue us.
2: Okay, last Let's debate it once it comes out.
0: Yes, I uh, if I get it, we'll talk about it. Uh, uh and the last item is just for people who think that there is I'm sorry Nate is not on this call, who think that uh, content moderation bias is not a thing. I would recommend that you look for uh, a presidential candidate in France named Zemmour Z E M M O U R on YouTube he he put out his campaign ad and put it on YouTube and YouTube slapped a an age limitation on it right there is nothing that you need to protect children from in this ad it is um you know he's a kind of he's the far right candidate and this is a very moving actually reflection on how alienated many French people feel from the country that they now live in. And he basically – it's a long discourse on when you go to the store, when you go to ride on the metro, you feel as though it's not your country anymore. It's not a country you recognize. And when you say it, they call you a racist. And you're not – vote for me, roughly. And yeah, that's, that's a far right message delivered very, very well. I think he's going to do uh, much better than the far right candidates have done in the past, but he'll still lose. But go watch it just the first couple of minutes and ask yourself, why did YouTube think that this was not suitable for the people under uh, 18? The only reason is they wanted to make sure that this particular thing got a limited reach and they couldn't think of anything else to do. That's my guess. All right. I promised to cover export control, and I promised to talk about the U.S. military and the Canadian Sigint establishment. Have both said yes? We we took action against ransomware groups. We're imposing costs. I have done my most recent cyber tunes uh, cartoon about exactly how the Canadians are imposing costs on hackers, and you'll just have to go to the Volat Conspiracy to see that. But Jamil, I you know the burden of my uh, our cartoon was. Imposing costs is not exactly what we expect our military to do when we call on them to, to, to get tough with somebody who's interfering with our national security. I mean, imposing costs just sounds like we made life hard for them. Maybe we DDoSed them. I'm, I'm unimpressed so far by what the U.S. government and the U.S. military has been able to do against ransomware groups. Make me feel better.
1: Well, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to, Stuart, in part because I actually do think it is, it's is—it's very valuable that the U.S. government is finally imposing and admitting imposing costs on bad actors in the space, whether they're criminal groups or nation-state attackers or, or a combination of the two, which more often than not is actually what's going on, particularly when you're talking about Russian um, and Chinese ransomware or criminal hacking groups. Um, but look, this goes back to the old adage, right, that you and I have talked about a lot, which is, you know, we always tell our kids that, you know, You know, if a bully harasses you on the playground, you ought to go, you know, tell the teacher and then we, the parents, the teacher will deal with it behind closed doors and it'll all be good, right? But we all know the real thing you should tell your kids and the real thing that happens in the international realm is you want the bully to stop bothering you on the playground, you punch him in the face in front of everybody else in the playground, and then the bully stops bothering you and everyone else stops bothering you. The problem with U.S. policy in the cyber domain is we keep getting hit in the face. We don't do anything about it. We talk about responding at a time and place of our choosing, which means we aren't going to do anything. And even if we do, we do it behind closed doors, quietly, secretly. Well, the Russians knew. Vladimir knew we did it. Well, guess what? That doesn't deter anyone. you got to punch the bully in the face, tell him you did it. So I'm glad General Noxunni is talking about it, and I'm glad the Canadians are talking about it. We ought to tell them what we did, how bad it was, and keep doing it. Now, the one downside is if we do that, Stuart, so is your point. What if what we did was really lame and wimpy, like when we admitted about the Internet Research Agency, what we did was we did them. Hey, listen. 1984 calls and wants its cyber attack back, right? <laughs> if you're going to go after somebody like the Russians, you got to make it hurt. It's like Ukraine, right? We keep talking, oh, if you go into Ukraine and invade, we'll impose economic sanctions. We'll give the Ukrainians military military uh, weapons. We'll, we'll strengthen NATO. Hey, you know what you ought to do if you really want to turn the Russians? Give the Ukrainians the weapons now, so there's actually a cost to the Russians. I mean, again, it seems like we don't know how the international realm works. We ought to behave. Like a, like a first world superpower and do it up front.
3: Yeah. So I think there's more issues here, right? I mean, we only have so much bandwidth to deal with problems in cyber, and so if all of our bandwidth is tuned toward Russian, you know, ransomware groups, it's not necessarily great for the rest of our strategy. And, you know, there's also people who say that the ransomware groups hold all of us at risk. I was reading JD Work's paper on this the other day, and that so we have to deal with it one way or the other, and, you know, dip Homeless. he hasn't been working either. So it's kind of a, we're kind of like in a bit of a dilemma here.
0: Yeah, I, I
1: agree with you. I mean, I mean that's just that we have a strategy, Dave, right? Like that, Like we have an actual approach that's effective, right? I don't doubt that, that General Sony has a theory about what to do. Probably is the right one, to be honest with you. The problem is he has been hamstrung for years in doing it. He's been told, take little pokes here and there, and you know, that's freeing you up. Let's unleash real U.S. might, both covert and overt and let's punch some bullies in the face and then see what happens. They've been punching us for a decade. We haven't done anything. Let's get in the game.
0: Yeah. So I I have a grandson who just went through that. Uh, He's 12 and small and uh, has long hair and encountered a a bully. And I didn't punch him in the face. It was actually a more sensitive place. And his parents and I have both said, well, that's not really the way to solve these problems. While Smiling in a way that completely undercut the message. Uh, uh, so, I, I I think you're right. We, we we probably conveyed to him that he he took a more effective approach. So, last topic. Uh, because I promised Dave I would talk about this, although I. Don't know what to do with it, and it's kind of embarrassing for the Biden administration. They had like a hundred nation conclave of to defend democracy around the world, but because it was just on Zoom, it, it it didn't make much of an impression. And it's not clear exactly what the outcome of having all these countries come together. Was one of the things that was announced was the United States has new export control policies on the kinds of attack uh, uh, software that was used by dark matter and, and the like. But that felt to me, maybe Dave, you saw something I didn't see, as though they were just repurposing something they had announced before Thanksgiving. It's not at all clear what policy outcome we actually got from this big international get-together?
3: I don't think in export control, it's never clear what outcome you're either expecting to get or going to get in any way. And I think that's part of the problem with export control in general. Now, when you look at like the fact sheets and effort that's been coming out of the Commerce Department and the White House with regards to export control, you see a lot of activity. So I think that by itself is a good like, indicator that things are happening, right? Like, this is not a small part of our effort. The entity list has, you know, it hasn't ballooned exactly, but it certainly had a lot of things added to it in, you know, the policy realm. It's also very weird when you announce that, you know, United States, Australia, Denmark, and Norway are going to have a sort of separate export control agreement amongst them that doesn't include, you know, like, Germany or France or... A Japan, lot of yeah Japan. Let,
0: let alone China which is what you'd need to actually have an effective
3: one yeah I think that's the biggest point and a lot of this stuff is that you know they when they announced this you know they had they, they have like their Washington Post you know article that comes out promoting it and you know the title was something like we've announced a major advancement in you know our human rights record but deep down it's sort of like what we're really announcing is how much Chinese software the Middle East is going to install. Yeah, because it's really like they get—they usually get a choice, right? Like they get a choice; they can either buy our face recognition software or the Chinese face recognition software. They have roughly the same features. They have roughly the same price. And you know, if if it's not like we can make a dent in whether or not they get face recognition software, so I think that's part of the issue here. Now, of course, we have other things trying to push against the Chinese in different ways. A lot of stuff happening. The intrusion software control announcement or uh, discussion period ended, I think, last Friday. So that – or last Monday, actually. So that was another big thing that happened. This stuff is all going through. There's a lot of stuff happening in export control. We don't know what direction we're moving, but we know we're moving in that direction pretty fast.
0: I think that's right. I think this administration – Um, it has decided it's going to embrace this. If it's bad for a few US companies, too bad. They want to show that they're different from the last administration. And this is a place where they can do it. That's why they have been peddling this so hard. And so if you're in this business, you're going to need to watch what comes out pretty carefully. Otherwise, I think uh, honestly,
3: there's another aspect of that too, where it's like, it's not necessarily that putting sort of meaningless controls or ambiguous controls is necessarily just bad for industry. It's also really bad for legitimacy of export controls and how those are viewed and how the whole system works. So that's the other side of the story.
0: Yeah, you're right. You worry that the the Bureau of Industrial Security should become the uh, Bureau of Virtue Signaling. Uh, that they're just going to put these things into place for symbolic reasons, and 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 we could see that uh, the 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 Europeans already have them in for virtue signaling purposes, so it it wouldn't be completely unknown for us to do that.
3: And All made right. one German security company. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, thanks, Dave. Maury, Jamil, this was a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground, but a lot of law. And I hope the l- listeners who want more can send us uh, feedback at Podcast at stepto.com you got plenty of time to do it because we're not even going to read the, those emails until we come back in January. Uh, but If you can leave us a review on iTunes, that will read. Meanwhile, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 387 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.